Hello, and welcome to The Funny Thing About Yoga, where we talk all things yoga and maybe make you laugh a little bit. I'm Gianna Gambino. And I'm Bradshaw Wish. Enjoy the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, I'm having so much fun. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the funny thing about yoga. It's me right now, but I'll be joined in just a moment by Bradshaw and a special guest named Nishanth. He goes by Nish the Fish on TikTok and Instagram. Maybe you've seen him, maybe you haven't, but we will definitely link to his profile in the show notes. I came across Nish on TikTok in the early days of the pandemic when I was, I guess, doom scrolling and trying to make TikTok work for me. But his videos are very concise. And in them, he kind of explains deep philosophical concepts and shares spiritual wisdom in a very digestible form. And I was intrigued. I was intrigued enough to message him and invite him to co or not co-teach, actually guest teach for our virtual 200 hour, where he did talk about mythology and yoga history and Patanjali and so much more. So I feel like I'm continuing to learn from Nish every day, every time he posts a new video. And, you know, this conversation was no different. Both Bradshaw and I had our minds expanded a bit and, the conversation, we went in directions that we didn't even anticipate. We had this idea that we would want to talk about humor and yoga and mythology and weave that all together. But instead, as we learned more about Nish, we wound up talking about Eastern and Western philosophy and where the ideologies cross over. And we got into Patanjali and death and Samkhya, just a little bit. And then, you know, a very fun story about Shiva. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Let us know what you think. Let's get to it. Hello, Nish. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, that's that. Namaskaram, namaskaram. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to have you here. Um, I did a little intro in the beginning, but we had Nish... Um, help with some of our lectures. And so you were really great to have on board. And I'd love for you to, you know, meet our wider audience. And if you can just for a second, introduce yourself and yeah, let the Mm. listeners know who you are and what you're about. Yes. May I open with a chant? Yes, of course. Om Namah Shivaya Satatam Panchakritya Vidhayane Chidananda Ghanna Swatma Paramartava Bhasine Om Samyag Bodha Vicharena Bhavana Masva Bhavataha Labdha Bodhodayanandam Vande Sangstana Matmanaha Om Shanti 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 Om Salutations to Shiva, who is none other than formless awareness, who is ever engaged in the dance of creation, maintenance, dissolution, self-revelation, and self-concealment, who in so doing reveals unto us our true nature, none other than that Shiva, consciousness saturated with bliss. That joyful awareness is the deity to whom I offer this. Om. Peace. 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 
Good morning, good morning. So, good morning. Um, I suppose that's enough by way of introduction. Yeah. <laughs> so, I have a question about it. You said um, the, the chanting in Sanskrit was the English after the translation. Yes, yeah. That, that was, was a translation. That was beautiful. It's a very loose translation. So, Sanskritist out there, please forgive me. I took some liberty. With... <laughs> yeah. Did you learn on your own or did you grow up learning Sanskrit? See, I was very fortunate. By God's grace, my grandfather is a great Shaiva saint. So, when I grew up, you know, he had a space next to our house where he spent most of his uh, later days just meditating, singing, writing, you know, that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. sometimes people would come and take classes, but most of the time he was there by himself. I was very fortunate because I got to come in and sit and watch him do rituals and listen to him sing. And he kind of taught me by example. He never really mm -hmm. gave me a lot of verbal instruction beyond fix your mind on God slash uh, never write or teach yoga unless you yourself are in a state of yoga. Those are the only things he actually really told me. But otherwise, mm -hmm. it was just his being, his God intoxication. You know, I've never seen someone so drunk, someone so um, ecstatic as that. So he, I think, was my first and most important uh, influence. Mm -hmm. Then right now, when he passed, he passed about three years ago. I was led to, oh, this is a, he kicked the body, he's continuing. But I was led <laughs> to um, my guru at present, who is of the Ramakrishna lineage. So, okay. so that's my lineage, Sri Ramakrishna. And it's kind of Kaula Tantra, Shaiva lineage. That's, that's where I'm yeah, okay. coming from. Well, I read online you were raised in Malaysia. Is yes. that where... Your grandpa was? Okay. Yes, we are. Uh, there's a lot of Indian diaspora all about the place like mm -hmm. Pacific Islands, like that. So Malaysia is one of the big Indian diaspora places from the colonial times, you know. So yeah. my mother's side came over from southern India, Kerala and Tamil country. My mm -hmm. grandfather's side, they're from Sri Lanka, but they're all Tamils. So northern Sri Lanka, there's a huge popul like Tamil population mm -hmm. and they're all Shaivas, you know. So okay. and, I grew up in Malaysia. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um that's the southern portion of India and which deity is traditionally worshipped in like the Tamil region? That's a really good question. I mean, there are great Vaishnava saints from that region. For okay. instance, there is um, Ramanuja who has a huge Vaishnava following down there. So there's mm -hmm. a very strong like Vishnu sort of like Ramakrishna sort of vibe, you know? Um, yeah. Then there's equally, I think, strong, maybe slightly stronger, if I may say so. It's hard to generalize, but I might say that there's a stronger maybe Shaiva population down there. Uh, okay. Some of the biggest and most important Shaiva temples might be in that region, like Chidambaram Temple. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's hard to say, you know, India is so eclectic. I can at least yeah. say that in Jaffna, Sri Lanka, where the vast majority of Tamils live in Sri Lanka, that's mm -hmm. predominantly a Shaiva place. So Shiva would okay. be like the predominant deity there. But the beauty about India is although the, all these deities have different names, there's this kind mm -hmm. of underlying understanding that they're just various saris dressing up the one same truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I want to talk more about the deities in a moment, but I'm curious how you wound up in LA. That's uh, that's where you're based. Yes, yes. I'm in Los Angeles yeah. now. By God's grace, somehow I've been dropped here. But <laughs> I think six years ago, 2016, about seven years ago, I uh, came over here on a student visa to okay. study at UCLA. I took a philosophy okay. degree there. Yeah. Oh, nice. Are you planning on staying in the States or yeah, staying in LA? For now, for now. It seems like here is where there's much joy to be had. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. So it's funny because so you studied philosophy, which I'd imagine would be a lot of like um like Western philosophy probably here in 
UCLA, and then you were probably raised yes. learning a lot of Eastern philosophy. Yes, yes. Have you found a lot of like crossover and do you use that in like what you're doing now? Yeah, a lot. Actually, my yeah. main interest is in the harmony of all religions. So mm-hmm. when it comes to philosophy, it's theology that I'm particularly interested in, like spiritual philosophy. And mm-hmm. so I love like Germans like Schopenhauer. That, I mean, Schopenhauer is interesting because he actually studied the Upanishads. So he's directly influenced by Eastern mm. philosophy. Or like I like the American transcendentalist, like William James Thoreau. I don't know if James mm-hmm. is a transcendentalist, but Thoreau and Emerson. But again, they were directly studying the Upanishads, right? So that's cute and all. Okay. But I'm particularly interested <laughs> in those traditions who weren't like directly overlapping with one another. So for mm-hmm. instance, like Heidegger or Hegel or people yeah. like that who weren't reading the Upanishads, but were coming to the same conclusions about the ultimate nature of reality. That to me shows that across cultures, any mm-hmm. sincere inquiry into the truth will give you the same observable, tangible truth. And that mm. kind of, you know, uh, so that shows me that no one culture has any monopoly on truth, truth being transcultural, you know? Yeah. So that was the beauty of studying Western philosophy. I could see that there was a human intuition when it came to beauty and to truth. And it's just that India, you know, it's it's, it's a nine, uh, by conservative estimates, about 5,000 year old culture or by liberal estimates, 9,000 year old or more. So it's had a lot of time to develop yeah. these schools of philosophy. Um, so with that background, studying Western philosophy is delightful. They, they're sort of mm-hmm. mutually illumining, you know? And, yeah. and so I, I feel like the distinction now between East and West is slowly um, dissolving for me. Is that something that you te- you teach a lot uh, in your your personal teachings? I think I think that's such such an important thing to wrap our head around uh, as Westerners is that we're we're constantly trying to I, I think like Eastern Western yeah everything's different but in reality everything is just the same with different verbiage and language precisely I mean the Western tradition has a very important mystic named Plotinus. And not a lot of people know about him, but Plotinus's writings um, were incredibly sophisticated spiritual writings. And um, they're very parallel to many of the discoveries of the Upanishads. And mm. I don't think that he was studying the Upanishads or anything like that, you know? Yeah. So mm-hmm. there are all these great Western mystics who have come to the same spiritual conclusions, just as lofty, just as exalted, um, yeah. you know, whether they were influenced directly or not. Aristotle, Socrates, all of these people, Plato. Um, so you're right. Like anybody who cares to maybe pick up on their tradition, like what, what came before in Western culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, plus in, in the West now, there's a trend of um, um, what is called scientifism, scientificish, uh, I can't quite say the word, materialist reductionism, where there's mm-hmm. a fad, there's a philosophical fad that uh, only matter and energy is ultimately real. And consciousness is just this byproduct or this epiphenomenon that arises from the firings of neurosynaptic fibers, right? And so that attitude that the world is predominantly matter with this kind of weird consciousness thing that mm-hmm. has smothered over the predecessor Western tradition of idealist and subjective idealist philosophy. So Pl- Plato, for instance, and Plotinus, these were very mystical thinkers who we don't really talk about today because their ideas mm-hmm. are no longer part of like the mainstream currency. Whereas in India, um, it's still a very charged philosophical atmosphere where the oldest Upanishadic ideas are still quite relevant front and center today, you know. Mm-hmm. You're definitely going to be teaching us a lot. It's funny because I have, so my background, I studied art. And so the little bit of philosophy that I've learned has always been through like aesthetics and then also yeah. a little bit on like phenomenology. So I have read a lot of, or not a lot, but I've, I've scratched the surface of reading like Heidegger and mm you know, Plato and the, the great classics. And then I think it's sort of funny now that I'm in the yoga world, 
in some way. And I'm trying to like read more Eastern philosophies and do, you know, do my own deep dive into that. I am, it's really interesting to hear you say the parallels. Cause I don't think I would have thought of it on my own. <laughs> yeah, me neither. All by the yeah. grace of the teacher. But you mentioned phenomenology. I think here's actually a really good place to demonstrate something. And, and Bradshaw, mm -hmm. you were saying like that seeming dichotomy between East and West. I think mm -hmm. this is the real dichotomy, not really that, but something deeper. So I'm holding a cup now. I don't know if some of your listeners might be listening, not watching, but I'm holding a cup up on the screen. Now I'm looking at this cup and it appears to me that there is a cup out there in the world right? Nothing mm -hmm. could be further from the truth because it's not the cup actually that's entering into my eyes. That would be disastrous. If even one particle of this cup went into my eyes, I would be blinded. So it's not, it's not the physical cup, right? Going into the eyes. At the very least, all I can say is that some light out there is entering into the retina and that light is creating some kind of reaction on the back of the retina and some chemical and electrical impulse is registering in the brain and somehow an image is being formed there. Now that image in the brain may or may not correspond at all to anything out there in reality. In fact, that image in the brain is wholly determined by any previous encounters I might have had of it or my subjective interpretation of what it has to do with me, whether I like it or dislike yeah. it. Notice that the cup that I'm seeing is more of a thought than a thing. I've mm -hmm. never actually seen a cup. I've only ever seen my thought called cup. So now... Um, it seems like we're left with this very startling conclusion. The world around me is at best just a mass of formless light being sculpted into shapes in my mind. So all of these names and forms, all of you, all of these things that I'm looking at, I'm looking at my own thoughts. I'm not looking at the world per se, you know, mm -hmm. right? So now look at the dichotomy here. Isn't this brilliant? So the Eastern mind, yeah. the Upanishad. Gotta go realize, think about that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so and, and also you could say right and you go further you could say if i had no senses if i had no eyes ears nose tongue skin there would not be a world for me no mm -hmm. one could report such a world. So I don't actually know that the world exists out there if I didn't have my senses. Now, mm. if I didn't have my mind, it wouldn't matter if I had eyes, ears, nose. I could have thousand mm. eyes. I wouldn't see anything without a mind. And if I did, if I had a mind, theoretically, if I had mind and if I had eyes and ears and if I, there was a world, but I was not aware, if I was not conscious, then it wouldn't matter. No world would appear to me, right? So notice, mm -hmm. there is something very deep about the human experience. And that is not what I see, but that I see. Not what I think, mm -hmm. but that I think. There's some subjective quality to my being. Now, the quote-unquote Eastern mind is obsessed with that. Since the mm -hmm. Upanishadic times, it realized, look, the world outside, dubious at best. I don't know what it is, and I can't ever access it as it is. But what I can be sure of is that I am consciousness. So they turn mm -hmm. inwards, you know. They, like, ignore the world, almost to, to, to the extent they ignore the world outside and plunge in through deep meditation. The ideal of the East is eyes closed, sitting upright and meditating on the heart. That's that's what like the uh, the pinnacle of civilization looks like in the East, right? Whereas mm. you could say, quote unquote, the West, and again, this is a fa false dichotomy, but the West is very outward and extroversive. It says, let's go out there and change the world. So they're always yeah. thinking about political issues and they're very interested mm -hmm. in science and all, that's all really good, right? So notice there are two strengths. In the East, the strength is spiritual. In the quote unquote mm. West, the strength is material. Now, if you yeah. go deeper, you'll see that those dichotomies aren't really true because in the East, you have great material developers too, like great scientists, like JC Bose, you know, um, great scientists, great people, uh, 
political, like Gandhi, for instance. And in the West, you'll see great spiritual beings like Plotinus and Plato. So notice, it's not really a dichotomy of East and West. It's really a dichotomy of world and spirit, of outward-looking mm -hmm. thinking and inward-looking thinking. And they're both important, you see. Of mm. course, I would argue that the inward-looking thinking is a bit more important since, mm. you know, if you change your mind and since the world is nowhere but in your mind, the only way to really change the world is to change your mind. Inside. So, yeah. So, and that's, of course, going to be our bias. We're all yoga teachers. So we're mm. mostly in that you know, but I think the vision is to marry them both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just said so much that I my mind went on a little journey while you were talking. And I was like, I started thinking about like, because we were talking about philosophers, I started thinking about the absurdists. And mm. I like, yes. just, just thinking about, you know, Camus and Kafka. Back in the day when I was like really into this, I was like really identifying with being an existentialist in some way where I was like, oh my God, this is the, you know, the meaning of life is nothing and so on. And then it's funny to like reduce, you know, to get that reduction from those writings and then to think about everything you just said. Yes. Like, I want to talk a little bit about the absurdist. Yeah. A little bit with humor and like yes, yes, how yes. that relates to what, just the fact that we are not nothing that we are God and all right. of that. Yes. Yes. You know, I'll tell you two jokes. I, I really okay. like um, the, the, the absurdist. Okay. So Buddha, right. The Buddha was once a mm -hmm. prince and he like, you know, I would think like his life was very much like uh, the life of a upper middle-class person in Los Angeles. You just have every possible <laughs> pleasure available to you, you know? So when he grew yeah. up for the first like 20 something years of his life, first almost 30 years of his life, all he had access to was pleasure, 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 mm. surrounded by friends, playing games, you know, all, all sorts of pleasures. And one day he became curious about, you know, the life beyond the walls of his little palace. He was a very sheltered kid. His father didn't want him to go outside for a variety of reasons. Mm. Anyway, so he does go outside. He sneaks outside. And uh, legendarily, he sees four things. First, he sees a sick person. And he asks his friend, his ac uh, accomplice, what is that? That's horrific. Sickness? Mm -hmm. Surely that doesn't happen to young, beautiful princes like me. And of course, his friend says, my king, I'm sorry. I'm my prince, I'm sorry. But sickness happens to us all. Rich, poor, young, and old. Then he sees an old man. And he thinks, ugh, that's, that's disgusting. What is that? That's, surely that's not going to be, that's not my fate. And my, my prince, unfortunately, rich or old, rich or young, or, uh, rich or young, everybody will get old. And finally, he sees a dead man. And he's horrified that death is the ultimate outcome of life. And he thinks, how come I've been sheltered from all of this? And that's kind of our situation too. Mm -hmm. We very rarely see sickness. Like the reason why the COVID pandemic was so frightening for many people is because- You see they sickness. Had sickness, yeah. And the second thing is uh, old age. We put all our old folks in the home mm. and we only see our grandparents every now and then. We don't really mm. see like the regret and the horror. Anyway, then death. It's so taboo. Mm. You can't bring it up. You know, you have to use euphemisms like that. So these three things, uh, when the Buddha saw it, he realized, interestingly, a kind of absurdity an absurdity in the human existence because here we are acting as if we will never grow old, never get sick and never die. Mm. We yeah. live as if life can satisfy us when in truth, all of us come up short. At the end of our days, we look back on our life and we think, oh my God, all those things that we thought were so important weren't. All the things mm -hmm. that we spent yeah. our energy on. So he was horrified by this. Then the fourth thing he saw was a monk. And he saw, oh my God, there are actually people in my culture, in my society who are trying to work out these problems and find a different way of living. So that night, legendarily, the Buddha, he was married. He had a beautiful wife and a beautiful child. But legendarily, he jumps on the back of a white horse, clears the temple, well, sorry, the palace walls and leaves on a journey that would later turn him into the Buddha. the Buddha. Now, his first teaching was this. Dukkam, dukkam, sarvam, dukkam. 
suffering, suffering, everything is suffering. You mm. either suffer because you don't get what you want or you suffer because you do get what you want and it's taken away from you. Okay, so this mm. is the absurdity, right? We're living in like this. But he didn't stop there. He went on further. He went on to say deep things like, why do we suffer? Well, because um, shanikam, shanikam, sarvam shanikam, everything is momentary. You know, th- th- everything in life, it seems permanent, but it's not. And mm. therefore, shunyam, shunyam, sarvam, shunyam, everything is void. Everything is empty. And therefore, anatman, anatman, sarvam, anatman. Therefore, I am not a person. So the ultimate conclusion of classical Buddhism is a denial of one's own personhood, which is actually the most liberating thing you could experience. Yeah. There's no longer, mm-hmm. anyway. So notice, if the Buddha had stopped at everything is suffering, he would have just been a French existentialist smoking cigarettes on yeah. the, yes, the exactly, left bank. Exactly. <laughs> so I would say like Camus and Saj and all that, it kind of ends where the Buddha starts. Yes. I love that. I love that. That's fascinating. And you're I, such I, a good storyteller, just by the way. Thank yes, you. you are an amazing storyteller. Yeah, I had, I had a question. You brought up death and it's it's kind of ironic because John and I, uh, for some reason, constantly keep coming back to this theme of death. I feel like- Yeah, we first, talk about it way too we much. We talk like, about it's it all the time. It's a funny podcast, but we're talking about but death we, again. I, I think because, <laughs> you know, you, um, you know, over the past seven years of my life, I've experienced a lot of death, the death of my mother, my grandparents, and I was able to- yeah, it's it, it's so true. It's so taboo. At least it seems in the West, where there's really just yes. not a lot of discussion surrounding death. It makes people very uncomfortable. Um, it's it's again, it seems very very taboo. People don't know how to interact when you talk about someone who has passed. What it what was that? What was your experience life again? Not to kind of like separate East and West, but yeah. was that different growing up? I mean, with your grandfather, you know, yeah. I, I'm recalling the be- the for the beginning of the conversation where you, you said something like he left the bodies on the next journey, which I think yeah, is yeah. such a beautiful way of um thinking about death and i think at least my experience growing up in the west if it's just like death yes, ending, yes. awful bad <laughs> you know what the problem is bradshaw it's materialism i think the problem is that people think the person is derived from the body so once the body yeah. is there, the body has a brain the brain produces some mysterious thing called consciousness and that consciousness mm. is the is the mother we love right? Mm. Is the, the brother I have like that. And then when that body goes away, we freak out as if the person has gone away. But you're right. In the East, there's less of this notion of the person is the body. Well, I mean, these days with globalization and, and materialization, mm. like you'll see that attitude maybe somewhat fading away in some cases. But at, at bottom, Indian culture, and I think a lot of Eastern cultures have this notion that the person is not the body any more than they are their clothes. So imagine mm-hmm. if my mother went upstairs, um, came downstairs in a red sari, and then went back upstairs and changed and came down in a green sari, it would be unbefitting of me to freak out as if she died. She just changed yes. her sari. Right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So India has always, you know, for a long time, oh, oh, this is very interesting. Various schools of philosophy in India have very different ideas about the ultimate nature of reality. Some believe that God exists. Some believe that God doesn't. Buddhists are atheist, non-theistic at least, Buddhists and Jains. Um, some believe that God exists, but God is more of a principle than a person, like the Vedantins. Mm. Some believe that God exists, but that God is a woman, like Kali. Others believe that mm-hmm. God exists, but God is... Um, formless. Others say God is... All of these have different views, but although they all have different theologies, here's one thing they all agree on, reincarnation. Mm. And what does that show you? It shows you that reincarnation is not a matter of belief. It's just a philosophical fact that various Mm -hmm. different schools with different philosophical beliefs um, adhere to just through logic. So the claim here is anything that starts must end and anything that ends must start. So anybody that's born must die. Therefore, anybody that dies must be born. You know, like say the case of a chicken, a chicken hatches to it a chick. Now that chick doesn't need to be trained to fear the hawk. 
the shadow of a hawk is enough to cause that chick to feel afraid. Even though the chick has never once had any, had any experiences with hawks or learned anything from its mother regarding hawks, the mm. West would say, oh, that's just, you know, instinct. Uh, but naming is not explaining. Mm-hmm. You know, like just, just saying the word instinct doesn't explain. So if you ask the question, okay, what is instinct? Let's take the case of a piano player who in her 30s is instinctually playing piano. She's talking to you, sipping tea. And at the same time with her left hand, she's playing beautiful melodies on the piano. How did she mm. get to that point where she could play as if by second nature, you know, if not through mm-hmm. practice? She mm. practiced so much through her life that one day it just, it just became muscle memory, right? So now think about someone who from a very young age, like Mozart or something, had great proficiency. We know mm. from scientific fact that like it's practice, it's repetitive behavior that creates second nature, that creates instinct. So if Mozart is demonstrating instinctual knowledge for piano, he must have practiced. But he was too young to practice. He was only three. So when must he have put in that practice if not in a previous life? So you see, these are mm-hmm. all arguments that support reincarnation. Therefore, when someone dies, you don't feel like they've died. They've just mm-hmm. gone on on their journey to a place that maybe you haven't gone yet, but you'll go. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I promise you, you will die too. (laughs) You'll die too. Don't worry. (laughs) We all walk that same road. (laughs) Don't be scared. You'll end up there as well. Yes. (laughs) We had um, two weeks ago, we had my aunt on the podcast, who's um, a a medium who speaks to, I guess, or gets communicates with with people who've passed on. And so it's really interesting because I've grown up you know, from the perspective of like knowing, I guess, about reincarnation, but in a totally different way because of this experience. But I feel like I don't want to like speak for everyone or make a big generalization, but I feel like it's a really hard concept to grasp. And like, you know, my, you know, what my aunt does is probably looked at as like a little bit absurd or the idea that like you just, (laughs) you made a joke on one of our podcasts, you're like, if we're reincarnated, do I have to do this again? Like this is hard enough. Here? I have to do that, do it again. Yeah. Actually, no. Actually, you won't. Because whatever experience you got in this life, you'll carry mm-hmm. it with you into your next life. Like, for instance, I have no, I don't care at all for money. Like, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to be rich in this life. Why? Mm-hmm. Why, why doesn't money motivate me? Probably because in a previous life I had a lot of it and now I don't really care for it. Because in a previous life, I realized it doesn't really satisfy me. Mm-hmm. So no, no, don't worry, Bradshaw. You won't have to do it all over. <laughs> you'd have learned. You'd have learned and then you would live better. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, the last thing I was gonna say about that is because also in my I guess, you know, I'm, I'm raised like Catholic, Christian, Roman Catholic, both my parents, you know, differ a little bit, but it was kind of frowned upon that she, you know, oh. in, in those religions, that's a little bit frowned upon. So I think the experience of just like growing up with and knowing like, oh, this is part of, you know, culture and beliefs or, yes. you know, that's like a very unique and profound and different experience to be raised like yeah, that yeah. I think You're lucky. and I think it changed I, for me <laughs> yeah you had that in your family like that was so lucky you know oh it's interesting do you believe in that psychic oh, mediums absolutely uh, okay yeah as as you well know like this stuff is absolutely real and yes it's it's there's more as I think it says in the Hamlet play you know uh Shakespeare's Hamlet Hamlet says there's more to your uh there's more to heaven and earth than is spoken of in your philosophy books Horatio Mm-hmm. These things that we've known as, as you know, cultures all over the world know to commune with the dead. They know to commune mm-hmm. with entities mm-hmm. that are not material. You can just go down to South America and you'll see there's like this robust. They're everywhere. Tradition. Yeah. Like the, the, the wisdom of the human culture, which is preserved all over the world, especially in mm. non-urban rural settings. 
that's like age old, right? This mm-hmm. materialism, this idea that the body produces the brain, oh my God, it's a passing fad. It's coming and going. It's nothing in the grand scheme of our civilization. You know, people mm-hmm. are just hypnotized by mm. the uh, illusion of power that comes from science and this fake philosophy that derives from a scientific basis when really none is provided. Like science, hard science, neuroscience will never actually make the claim that the brain produces consciousness. They just can't mm-hmm. claim that because while there are clear correlations between the brain and mind or the brain and experience, there's no sense in which the brain can produce a complex, uh, it can do so many complex things, but it can't, you can't account for this simple fact of first person awareness. The fact that mm-hmm. there's a feeling, a subjective quality mm-hmm. to my life. Why doesn't the table have it? Why doesn't AI have it? Like these questions of we can code for really complex behavior like art making and, you know, but we mm-hmm. language, we can't code for consciousness, probably because consciousness can never emerge from, from matter. And understanding that mm-hmm. um, will really change our view on things like mediumship and spiritism and um, reincarnation. The reason why it's really hard for many people to grok reincarnation is because of the spell of material reductionism, this really mm-hmm. ungrounded philosophy. If carefully poked will come apart at the seams. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you feel that reincarnation sometimes has been used in the past though? Um, like, like all, like all different thoughts, but um, you're born into a certain class. So in your last life, you weren't a good person or X, Y, and Z. And that can be kind of be used in a very manipulative manner. Sure. sure. And you're right. Anything can, I think, be construed in that way, but mm. notice if indeed, and, and this is the logical conclusion of that thought, if yeah. indeed my present circumstance was caused by me in a previous life, that might on one hand be victim blaming, but on another, it's actually a very empowering statement. Because if I'm here now because of what I did then, then what I do now will change what will happen to me later. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. look at the alternative. I am powerlessly placed in this situation. That's yeah, horrifying yeah. because either that means God is punishing me or yes. even worse, this is arbitrary and random. And at any other time I could be similarly placed in this. That's an even worse situation to be in. I think if you feel oppressed, I think mm-hmm. better is to say, look, this sucks. And you know what? So be it. But if it's here the way that it is because of what I did in the past, then from starting now, I'm going to behave differently. I won't let these things happen anymore like that. Mm. So I think, although you're right, at first, it can be quite a scary teaching. I think (laughs) the responsibility that it forces into your hands is actually quite empowering. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I want to like just very subtly shift gears because I think we're kind of touching on like a lot, (laughs) a lot, a lot. But like, you know, as we get into theology a little bit, I'm I want to ask like the age old question of like, is yoga based on religion or can you describe that to our listeners or the relationship? Yeah, that's such a good question, G. Yes, it's very, very complex because the word religion means something very different to the Westerner than it does to the Upanishadic thinkers of India. Okay, so religion here means belief, right? Typically, so much so that you call them faiths. What's your Mm -hmm. faith? faith. So there's, that's, that's one type of religion. It's very good. It's a beautiful form of religion, but India has a much broader concept of religion than just that. So here, when we say the word religion, we think, oh, it's about subscribing to a set of beliefs, typically historical. So I have to accept that a certain figure existed or died, or I have to accept a certain miracle. or I just have to believe in a certain way and subscribe to a certain community, right? That's the, typically that's the connotation of the word religion here. And that's why it has a very bad connotation because it seems like anti-rational or anti-scientific to just like on faith, accept a few ideas that 
you know, have often been historically speaking used to manipulate and 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 oppress. So <laughs> that's the sticky thing about the word religion here. And the word God carries with it a lot of psychological baggage for many people in the West, because rightly so, um, they've had such horrible experiences growing up with uh, pastors who maybe disappointed them or um, mm. members of the church who maybe weren't what they claimed to be. On one hand, they preached a message of love. The Christ was nothing but love and inclusiveness. And then on the other hand, they went out and like, excluded people or hated on yeah. people so mm -hmm. it's a religion in the west is a very fraught and confusing experience yeah. religion anywhere yes, right? that is that is true <laughs> yeah, but in anywhere. the west we, we really we really uh, messed it up over here that's for sure and, and, and again not to fall into the false dichotomy of east and west but again yeah, I yeah. the real dichotomy is um, materialism so as long as you believe that matter is ultimately real what can we know about god now here's the thing in the east um, especially in india the word for religion the earliest word for religion is actually darshana Darshana in Sanskrit means to see or to experience. So notice now, religion is not a matter of belief. It's a matter of direct yeah, personal experience. So mm. you can't believe in God unless you see her, right? What do, who, who has the right to talk about God except those who are talking to God? And more importantly, if someone anywhere has experienced anything, you too can experience that. That's the basic claim of science, right? If anything mm -hmm. is possible for any one man, that same thing must be possible for every man, woman, and child in any time through the same procedure. So now the faith has moved away from the outcome and towards the procedure. The procedure here is yoga. Yoga is traditionally the means of uh, mystic development. So like say, okay, say there's a table in front of me right now. A carpenter is going to see a very different table than like an unschooled, unlettered person, right? The carpenter has done a certain set of exercises. They've studied, they've practiced, and they've refined their perception so much so that they're able to see something of the table that someone else might not be able to see. So yoga is not a religion in that it doesn't ask you to believe in anything other than the process and the method. But it is a religion in that the outcome of practicing yoga, yoga here, by the way, I mean Patanjali's Raja Yoga, but really I mean mm -hmm. yoga in the sense of any spiritual practice anywhere in the world. If you do the method, you must get the result. And the observable, mm -hmm. tangible result is you will see mystically. You won't see what we look, and when you look around, we see a world, but when you look around uh, with the eyes of yoga, you will see only God. God all around, God within, God in each and every person. Mm, only mm. God exists, but this must not be believed. I'll give you a joke. Imagine a math teacher comes in and she writes on the board an equation and she says, okay, children, do you believe? I mean, sorry, do you understand? And the kids say, no, teacher, I don't understand, but I believe you. You're great. The, I believe <laughs> you. The teacher would slap her head and say, I, I didn't ask you to believe me. I asked you to understand. What is understanding if not seeing for yourself? So I'd answer this question by saying religion means something else to the Eastern mind. It means direct personal experience. It's a scientific inquiry into truth. And, and so yoga um, is not a, a religion in the sense that it doesn't ask you to believe anything, but it is a religion in that it's a mystical spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. yeah. I love that answer. It explains and makes sense of so much, but it makes me wonder about your experience teaching yoga in LA. Mm -hmm. What, like, what are your classes? Like, are you, you know, like that math equation, are you getting people to understand all right. of Patanjali's yeah. Raja, or are you kind of doing what a lot of Westerners do, which is kind of water down and present it in just like asana with a little bit of sprinkled in, right, right, you right. know, yeah. philosophy. You know, um, it's a really, that's a beautiful question. Let me just make one point about the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali itself. There's something sure. very interesting to your previous question about religion. Okay. Now, in India, there are many words 
to 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 say God, right? And God mm-hmm. means many different things. In some cases, God is pure power. God is not powerful. God is power. So the word for God is Shakti. So she's Makali. She symbolizes Makali. So you might say Bhagavati or um, Narayani. That's one name for God. Or the Vaishnavas will say Narayana or Bhagavan like that. So there are different names of God that appeal to different sects, you know. And so in mm-hmm. India, you have a lot of these different religious sects and they all have different... So the word Hinduism is, is kind of fraught because it, you know, it, it, it's trying to describe a lot of different things with actually a lot of different beliefs. Some Hindus are actually non-theistic or flat, flat out atheistic. So that's the, that's the wild thing. You know, usually you think in religion, everyone in the religion believes the same thing. But in Hinduism, you see as many sects as there are people. Anyway, notice what Patanjali does. He stays clear of all these sectarian problems and he instead uses the word Ishvara which means God, but it has Mm -hmm. a very non-sectarian connotation. So therefore, anybody studying the text, their God could be Allah or Jesus or the Father or the unspeakable Tetragrammaton, okay? Or they could be Shaivas or Vaishnavas or Shaktas. It doesn't matter actually because um, your initial, or, or they could be atheists. They could be like Buddhists or Jains or just flat out materialists. It doesn't matter because the word Ishvara is just to fill in the blanks for that which is the ultimate truth, the ultimate reality. So notice in this sense, yoga is absolutely not a religion because it doesn't make any claims on behalf of any sect. It belongs to all, whether you're a Christian, a Muslim, or and, and every tradition has a yoga, you know? Like, you know, the mm. Islamic tradition, the Sufi tradition, you know what they, they their practice, a lot of it is they go to a guru, which they call an effendi. The the guru then gives them a mantra, which is called zikir, usually a verse from the Quran. And with a rosary, they sit in an upright posture. I mean, obviously there are a lot of different Sufi sects. I'm only speaking to some of them. And then they, uh, they, they with their rosary, chant the mantra over, I mean, the, the zikir over and over. Now in the Christian Eastern Orthodox tradition, they have a prayer rope. Their elder mm-hmm. or spiritual director, their preceptor gives them a mantra. Typically, it's the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy upon me. Mm-hmm. Then they go off in, sometimes to the desert and they'll just like practice they'll repeat that mantra over and over right now look at what happens in the indian yogic tradition you go to a guru the guru says here's your mantra whispers it into your ear and then you take your rosary your your rudraksha what have you and then you go and you sit you do so notice these are different traditions they all have yoga yeah so Mm -hmm. i just want to make a point that yoga is not what we think it's not Mm. it's not like this particular cultural phenomenon although that's what i practice really yoga just means any practice to directly perceive god and every Mm -hmm. every religion if it is to survive must have some kind of yoga but if you just participate in the religion without doing the yoga then you know you're just a believer but if you do the yoga then you become a mystic and Mm -hmm. often in some cases persecuted Okay, anyway, now I want to come to your next question. Is that just really quick question based on that? That's like the core, um, core, I guess, values of like Samkhya philosophy that you described. Okay, that's that's a can of worms. I don't know if you want to open it. (laughs) Samkhya is a whole... Okay, Sankhya, okay. by the way, does not believe in God. Sankhya is a non I thought they believed, and we could take this out. I don't really mind, but I'm just trying to understand for myself because I always, uh, I guess positioned that as like there can be what you described like many different names for one thing and it kind of that's not sankhya that that's more of like the indian kind of like you know i even prior to the word indian like this is south asian like you'll find in pakistan bangladesh tibet you'll find it in even burma but it's like it's a deep idea of yeah there's one truth and we're all calling it by different names mm-hmm. that that applies to the whole but you know sankhya if, you, if you're looking at sankhya as a school of philosophy in and of itself is non-theistic so they believe that there's not believe but they they describe the ultimate nature of reality as purusha and prakriti purusha yeah. is not god prakriti is the world and you know sankhya is a very clever argument suppose god exists right 
Suppose there's a God. Now that God, by virtue of being God, must be beyond the world. See, the world is all about change and decay and, and God being God is beyond change. So God is the changeless one, right? God is also beyond time, beyond space and beyond form. So God is the eternal, all-pervasive, formless, pure spirit. And so we can call that, let's say, Purusha, pure spirit. Now the world mm -hmm. is Prakriti. It's time-based, it's causality-based, it's space-based, and it's a world of change. Okay, now mm -hmm. here's the thing. If God was perfect, why would God have any desire whatsoever? Any kind of desire implies a lack within God, which would jeopardize mm. his role as God. So if God desired to create the world, what kind of God is that? If God desired his worshipers to worship him, mm. what kind of God is that? Like a, a jealous God is an uh, uh, oxymoron because for God to be God, God must be perfect. So any mm. lack, any jealousy is an imperfection in God. So first of all, the Sankhyans say, even if God existed, why would God create? What, what would be in it for God? God being the perfect desireless one. That's the first question. Second question is, even if God did want to create, how would he? God being categorically different from the world, as mm. the number two is categorically different from the color red. You wouldn't say there's a causal relationship between the number two and the color red. Those two being categorically different. Similarly, God and the world being categorically different. What causal relationship could there be between them? How could God be the cause and the world be the effect? So notice, what Sankhya has done is presented a few very strong striking and clever arguments to dismiss God's role in creation. Mm, so Sankhya is okay. non-theistic. It doesn't accept God. However, what it does accept is pure non-dual, no, sorry, not sorry, pure, pure consciousness. And that consciousness is what you are separate from the world. The world actually is created through its own internal processes, much like the big bang. They call it the three gunas becoming destabilized. Okay. That's Sankhya, mm -hmm. right? Now yeah, yoga yeah. is premised on Sankhya, but yoga is more theistic in that unlike Sankhya, which is atheistic or non-theistic, yoga introduces the idea of Ishvara, God. But like Sankhya, yoga doesn't believe that Ishvara created the universe for the reasons aforementioned. Rather, they, their reasoning is as follows. Every yogi must have a guru. Everyone needs a teacher, whoever you are, you know, you want to learn driving mm -hmm. need a teacher, but your teacher needs a teacher and your teacher's teacher needs a teacher. So if you trace the lineage all the way up, you're going to get an infinite regress unless you have one ultimate teacher, the Adi Yogi, and that's God. So God is the, in, in the yoga system, the first teacher. Okay. okay. But obviously like now we're talking about Sankhya and yoga. These are schools of philosophy, um, but the word yoga has two connotations, one as a school of philosophy in and of itself, but again, also as in the way we've been describing it as a practice or as a means. In that mm -hmm. connotation, oh, it's not tied to any one philosophy. It belongs to all the different uh, religions. And yeah, exactly. That's why I say okay. it's a can of worms because it is a can asking of about Sankhya, you're asking <laughs> about a philosophical, technical point, you mm -hmm. know, and so that's going to take us into a very technical discussion. Yeah. Yeah. And you can really spend a lifetime, I guess, digging into it. Several. <laughs> Seriously. Um, but I guess to go back, I know we I took us on a tangent, but to go back to I guess my former question of yes. how you kind of I guess bring your teachings in to LA and what you do, mm. if you can tell us a little bit about yeah. that. Um, say a mother has um a fish, she goes to the market and buys a fish. Now say she has five children. Now each of those children will have a different power of digestion. Some, the younger child may not be able to digest a fried fish. So for that younger child, you must prepare like a soupy thing, like some kind of stew. And maybe the middle child can eat the fried fish, but it can't have spicy food. So you give the eldest child the spicy fried fish, the curry. You give the middle child a bland but fried fish and you give the youngest child a stew. You know, That's how a teacher, I think, approaches the world. You think, what's the power mm -hmm. of digestion here? 
And what can I offer that suits that, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's not a matter of diluting or watering down, but rather it's a matter of adjusting to the audience. um, What will most benefit them? Because you see, let's say someone goes to like, like, you know, there are some LA studios who at first glance might seem really divorced from the tradition. They don't use any Sanskrit words for the poses, right? They don't even recognize that this is an Indian tradition. So there's no Mm. acknowledgement of the predecessor culture. Um, And if you go into the studio, it's all like, Los Angelesified, you know. Yes, yes. You'll, you'll yeah. see it's like and, we and know. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> they'll they'll blast little peep, and then they'll all do, and and you know, yeah. it's, oh, that's horrifying. That's 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 manifesting. But no, actually, that has a part to play also because say someone is not ready for all this spiritual stuff. Like if they walk into a studio, suddenly you chant Om. You know, if they hear that in the beginning of class, they might tense up and feel, oh my God, mm. it's a cult. It's a religion. Soon they're mm. going to take my money because they might've had really horrible experiences growing experiences. up with religion. So, and, and also they might think about like, you know, like they might have maybe in some ways xenophobic ideas about Eastern spirituality. For whatever reason, there's a person who might not be served by a class that starts with Om or a mm-hmm. space which has a Ganesh or a Buddha, or what have you, right? They're not yet ready for that. So what, what, what what's there for them? Are we just going to leave them by the wayside? Hopefully not. For by the grace of God, there exist certain studios that have, you know, scrubbed away all such elements and all that's left is the posture. So the person comes mm. to such a class, they do these postures and what would be criticized as a totally materialistic exercise based, you know, but then that person might go home and do, you know, feeling the bliss and joy of a Shavasana after a long sequence, they might go home and just type into Google yoga. And then they might slowly start to learn. And then then they might come to a studio with a little more authenticity. And then from there, they Mm. might end up sooner or later in one of these Zoom talks where we discuss (laughs) Sankhya and yoga. So again, it's all a progression. And Mm -hmm. each one of us plays a role there. And so Mm. I very rarely will be called upon to teach like a postural yoga class, like with a fitness orientation for Mm. people who are looking to sculpt. That's not the role that I play, you know? That would be like Mm -hmm. a different duty and that duty is no less or no better than my duty my Mm. duty in the the scheme of things is to teach like philosophy and spirituality Mm. if you come to one of my yoga classes well i mean Mm -hmm. you know you're going to be confronted with a lot of religious symbolism you're going Mm -hmm. to hear a lot of sanskrit there's going to be a lot of mantra and a lot of chanting it'll be Mm. pretty academic and and kind of intellectual oriented and most of my classes are meditation so there's not a lot of movement actually in Mm. most of my classes and even when there is in the context of postural yoga, like Hatha yoga, I do teach three classes like that a week. But even in the context of Hatha yoga, um, it's very mantra oriented. As you're moving, you're chanting mantras. It's very meditative because the practice is not about the body, but more about transcending the body like that. So it's just a mm-hmm. different flavor. So I've never needed to change what I offer to suit my students only because that's just the kind of fish that I cook. And there's mm-hmm. obviously going to be people out there who like that kind of fish. And there are going to be people uh, also out there who are offering a different kind of fish for different digestive or preferences, you know. Mm-hmm. You are good I at like telling the, the story. You are good <laughs> at <laughs> weaving it right back in. I have, I have a question, though, yeah. like very, very much related to this. I'm so happy you brought it up. Yeah. I am just going to be very, uh, you know, honest, and a little vulnerable. John and I have done some trainings in San Francisco. Mm. And um, there a lot of the studios have a lot of chanting. Mm. And in Chicago, there's not you don't you don't experience a lot of chanting. For right. me personally, I get very uncomfortable when I see a young female presenting white girl chanting because mm. to me it doesn't feel authentic. Right. Yes. And it it feels uh, it 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 makes it's it appropriate of it, it does and it makes me 
be at it makes me have a major pause right, right. um and it may you know i'm just like mm, not not doing it not buying it so a lot of those experiences for me and my yoga experience of taking classes like this have been from a lot of people that are white and young and what seems like they're just a, you know appropriating all this information that and that that makes me um it puts a bad taste in my mouth. Yes. So it's, it's, it's hard. I feel like it's hard to find authentic teachers, honestly. teachers, teach, yeah. teachers. And at least when it comes to the um, philosophical uh, teachings of the yoga tradition Yes, uh, and a bunch of white people oming is it makes it Gianna knows I'll be like, Oh, I can't do it. He, he like, will have to just, I have, an, I have a major aversion down, to like, it. Yeah. I have a major right. aversion yes, to yes. it. It makes me like, Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Well, you know, we're looking for authentic teachers who are sensitive to the deeper nuances of the practice. Here they are. Yeah. There's Gianna and Bradshaw right here. <laughs> and I think that's increasingly true. We're trying. I think it's, I mean, on that note, there's been so much like mixed messaging as, you know, um, from my perspective, like I'm, I'm very, very appreciative of Indian culture and I want to come to it from yeah. that lens. And I think so much has been brought to light. Like, can we say namaste as white yoga teachers? Yeah, and the yeah. more that I learn, the more sensitive I become and the more confusing it can be, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so I am of Indian descent, grew up pretty much in an ashram, right? So you would say, oh, this person is probably someone um, who has the right to talk about yoga. But that mm. might not be necessarily true. Just because mm. I'm Indian and just because I grew up in an ashram doesn't mean I know a rat's ass about yoga. Yeah. Right, And it'd be really easy for me to fool everyone. I could mm. just like say a bunch of things in Sanskrit and like just present them in my own idiosyncratic way, right? And unfortunately, the, the, the pendulum swinging the other way will cause people to think, oh, well, he must be legit because he's, he's a brown like Indian yoga teacher. Now, this is exactly what happened in the 60s. A bunch of Indians came over and yeah. scammed Americans left, right, and center. Americans are so sweet and, and genuine and earnest and they wanted to learn spirituality. They just assumed that just because these people were Indian, first of all, their intentions were good. And second mm. of all, they knew what they were talking about. But there are a lot of Indian teachers who are just like off the wall. Like they're, what they're teaching is like incredibly idiosyncratic. Like um, I don't want to name any names, but there are some traditions here, uh, very mm -hmm. prominent in LA and in America that were founded by Indian teachers, right? That have no basis whatsoever in the tradition. And notice in those communities, they don't empower those students to go on their own journey to like mm -hmm. maybe discover not only the scriptures of India for themselves, but also their own religious traditions, right? Those traditions actually become cults of personality centered around an Indian guru. So the teacher, mm -hmm. you know, will present himself as like an authority. And then the Americans who are hungry for some authentic lineage will just flock to that teacher and become enslaved by them. So that's, that's, that's so a sad. big problem. It's very sad. So the other extreme is like, a, a, not, a, not a fetishization, but a, a, a too, too much trust in the skin. Like just mm -hmm. because they're brown, they must know something. No, no, no. Most Indians, I would say, I would say okay, this is loose figure, but I think 90% 90, 90 of Indians don't know Sanskrit, right? That's important. Mm -hmm. But do you need to know Sanskrit? Absolutely not. I mean, you, you, you grew up, you're like a fish in water. You grew up in all of these traditions, but that doesn't mean you actually understand the nuances behind. Mm -hmm. When we have pujas here, the funny thing is the Indians, sometimes you'll see they're like Indians from India. They'll be here. They'll just like be on their phone while we're doing puja. <laughs> Why? Because it's such a big, it's just religion to many of them. It's for a lot of Indians. It's not spirituality, you know, it's just religion. It's just what they do culturally. So mm -hmm. you can't, from that deduce that just because you're Indian, they're going to be a good teacher. Now in India, there are a lot of great teachers. Um, perhaps the most 
concentrated number of great teachers are in India necessarily because the culture has presented that. And so necessarily um, Indian spirituality because of various historical reasons, a lot of them by chance, happens to be the most mature, fully fledged, developed system of spirituality there is. And interestingly, it also presents a good system of checks and balances. Scripture is a good check and balance. Guru is a good check and balance. The Guru Sangha is a good check and balance. But most of all, it empowers you to reason for yourself. That's one thing. Now, on the other hand, um, there are great Western uh, yoga teachers, right? So there are like people like, for instance, Swami Vivekananda, the first uh, Indian saint to, so this is the first Indian saint to kind of all the yoga studios in America are probably because of Swami Vivekananda, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, he gave a talk in Chicago. I think yeah, World Fair. That, World Fair, 1893. And in that talk, he opened with my sisters and brothers of America. You know, he saw no distinction between East and West. And he taught them as he would his people back home in India. And mm. many of them turned out to be very fit and capable disciples. One of them, Sister Nivedita, an Irish woman, I believe, Margaret Noble, um, went on to become one of the greatest Indian saints, you know, and she's a white woman. Uh, think about mm -hmm. Mother Teresa. Uh, okay, that's mm -hmm. controversial, I think. But think of the Sister Nivedita, at least. Like, you can't, you can't deny that she was a spiritual dynamo and white. And here, I've met a lot of, like, predominantly white yoga teachers who are older, certainly. And I've, in India, very rarely encountered such authentic teachers as that. And, you know, mm -hmm. such caring. And, and, and so when I teach at One Down Dog, that's a studio that really cares about authenticity and lineage. And they're making mm -hmm. sure that their teacher, um, their staff is very diverse. So they have like all different body types, all different Love faces, it. all different ages. And for their philosophy section, it's valuable to them that I teach it. Because for mm -hmm. them, they're thinking, oh, I need to have like someone who, you know, and, and, and so those studios are becoming more and more common, right? Mm -hmm. And on Instagram and TikTok, you'll see in my comments, like more and more people who might have been those like, you know, young, you know, white yoga teachers who don't really mm -hmm. know what they're talking about. They realize that mm -hmm. and they're like hungry to know. And they come yeah. and they're commenting and they're like, oh, I never knew this. I've been chanting Om mm. and Namaste for, I, I've been ending my classes with Namaste, but mm. now I realize that Namaste is not a farewell. It's a greeting. Mm. So I, I, what I found here is that for the- And their intention's part, not bad. It's not yes, that they're coming yeah. from a place of 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 being, you know, of, it, it's- yeah, yeah, they just The don't intention know. isn't bad. Yeah. They don't know. And so if given the opportunity, because they don't understand that it's this 5,000 year old tradition mm -hmm. of lineage-based instruction rooted in God. They mm -hmm. think it's like some, it's, you just learn this thing like, oh, namaste, okay, it goes with the, okay, I'm doing this, or I say, I say <laughs> namaste. But it's, you're right, it's, it's, I think what grates on us is not that it's irreverent or malicious, it's just like, just kind of dumb. <laughs> yeah. It's just mm -hmm. under nuanced, yeah. it's just like, like glib, it's glib and uh, flippant, but not outright malicious or irreverential. So all that's needed now is awareness. So like this yeah. podcast, for instance, I mean, a lot of people will listen to it and be like, oh, I really need to get deeper. I need to understand this tradition more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really We're going to need you on for five more episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting and valuable, you know, you know, wisdom that you just shared with us. And I know we're nearing the end of the hour, but I just want to say part of you know, one of the lectures that you had done for our school, Kaya Yoga School, was on mythology. And mm. um, I find, I love immersing myself in in just like literally just learning these stories because there is so much symbolism and many life lessons that you can take from it. And I think your storytelling is amazing, but I also find some of them so like uh, just humorous and, and, and yeah, just whimsical. So I was wondering if 
I guess this is a two-part question. If you can kind of let us know what you think the role of humor is within uh, all of this, but then also if there is like a, one of the shorter stories, cause I know they could be long that you could share with us that from Hindu mythology, that is humorous. We would love to yeah. kind of like hear that. That could oh. be your funny story. Yeah. It could be yeah, your funny story. Wow. Okay. I'm thinking <laughs> there's so many, like just gems, like really funny stories. Um, okay. I'll tell you one that I like. Um, so I obviously I grew up as a Shaiva, so the imagery of Lord Shiva was very present. And Lord Shiva, as you know, is the symbol for renunciation. Basically, it's like that badass ability to say, I am no longer going to cling to those things that are not ultimately fulfilling. Mm-hmm. You know, unless it's the truth, I don't want it. That's the attitude, right? So mm-hmm. Lord Shiva, as you know, is depicted as this yogi meditating high up in the Himalayas, far away, far removed from the trivialities of the world, right? So now in one story, uh, Parvati, his wife, his future wife, um, who is an incarnation of his former wife, uh, who self-immolated the whole thing, but mm-hmm. she is born to a king in the Himalayas, the king of the Himalayas. And as a young princess, she could think of nothing but Shiva. So day and night, she meditated on Shiva, she dreamed of Shiva, she worshipped Shiva. And finally, Lord Shiva felt her presence and was now interested in marrying her. And so Narada, the great sage, came to the court of King Himalaya and said, um, Lord Shiva asks for your daughter's hand in marriage. The great God, Lord Shiva. Now, King Himalaya and his wife, the queen, had never before heard um, of Shiva or seen Shiva. So they, I mean, they heard of him, never saw him. So they thought, okay, that, that, that's fine. Um, he's a great God after all. Remember, they've never seen him. So on the day of the wedding, all these different gods were entering into the palace. First came the god of the sun, Surya. And the mother, the queen, was so excited. Is that him? Is that my son-in-law? He's so radiant. He's so handsome. He's so beautiful. And Narada, standing next to her, said, No, ma'am, it's that's not Shiva. Shiva is more handsome, more radiant, more beautiful. Then the next god who comes in in the procession is Vishnu. So, st- or, 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 or um, actually, the, the next god is Kubera, who's the god of wealth, who's so radiant, full of splendor. And the mother says, Is that him? Is that my child? Is my, my new child? And he said, No, 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 no. That's Kubera. Shiva is more handsome, more radiant, more beautiful. Then finally, Vishnu comes in with his entourage, spinning disc and everything, just more beautiful in the sun and the moon and all the wealth in the world. And now she's beside herself with joy. That must be him, right? So resplendent, so royal, so beautiful, so handsome. And Narada says, no, mom, that is just uh, Vishnu. He's also beautiful, but Shiva is <laughs> more handsome, more beautiful, more radiant. Sorry for the sectarian overtone here. Then, then Lord Shiva comes in. But here's the thing. When he comes in, he's attended to not by a retinue of celestial angels and dancers and other such things. He's attended to by a retinue of goblins and ghosts and vampires and spooks. Remember, Lord Shiva's friends are the the Bhuta Ganas, fierce beings. They all come in and he comes in swaying on the shoulders of an ugly old bull, you know, and he's sitting there covered in ash with matted locks, wearing nothing but a loincloth, garlanded not in jewels, but in snakes, holding not great weapons or crystals, but a skull holding a trident, like a very horrifying sight. And she goes, who is that? And who invited them? And Narada <laughs> nudges her and goes, 
that is your son-in-law. That is Shiva, Mahadeva, the great God. So she swoons. <laughs> she passes out. <laughs> when she wakes up, she calls off the wedding. She says, my daughter is not to marry that spook of a God. What is that, a God <laughs> or a demon? No, absolutely not is she going to go through with this marriage. Now, Parvati, the young Parvati, is furious with her husband for daring to show up at this royal wedding this way. So he goes and probably catches him by his ear and twists his ear and drags him into the shower. And she like bathes him. She oils his hair, washes away the, the, the ash and oils his body and like bathes him. So Shiva gets a makeover, right? <laughs> Which I think is so sweet. The God of gods, Lord Shiva, the Lord of time itself is here being schooled by a young princess, a young girl. It's like, well, anyway. So now the mother runs downstairs to confront Lord Shiva and banish him from her kingdom and call off the wedding. So she's running down the stairs. Lord Shiva steps out of the bathhouse and she bumps into his chest and she looks up and she has a vision of Lord Shiva. And she thinks, so handsome, so beautiful, so radiant. And of course, the wedding happens. (laughs) (laughs) That is so good. And then happily ever after. Happily ever Um, after. That was hysterical. Yeah, I I love that one. I've I've heard, um, it's funny, I've, the beginning part that you glaze over, I've heard people tell the story of like her trying to get Shiva's attention, like kind of like peacocking and all of yeah. that is really humorous too. Like, right. you know, things she's doing to try to, I feel like every woman can relate to <laughs> trying yeah. to get, and, and get someone's attention. It's funny I because he- same she, thing. Right? But it doesn't work. <laughs> like he's like in his meditation. So interestingly, she like nags him. She goes off and meditates on her own. Yeah. And then now he's interested. And then he's like, oh, who's that he's like, oh. on the other mountain? <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Oh, gosh. Well, we appreciate you so much. Um, we would love it if you can tell our listeners where they can find you. Tell them about the Monday nights and yeah, yeah. your TikTok, Instagram, all that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. For another hour, we could tell jokes. Like, there's so many right? jokes. There's some raunchy ones. I just went with a pretty, like, you know, like. Oh, we wanted the ron- raunchy ones. We wanted ones. the raunchy ones. <laughs> it's a really good. The, next time, it's just niching all the raunchiest tales. Raunchy, yeah. Would, would you be into coming back? I'm just going to ask you oh, live on the podcast. Okay. Always. Always. All right. Maybe, maybe we do a, a funnier, uh, raunchy episode. We can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can dive into it. That's awesome. Yes. All right. Well, where can folks okay. find you? Yeah. So um Monday night's nice opportunity for all of us to come together. It's like free, open to the public, and it's a Zoom gathering, and people all over the world come. And it's cool because everyone is from a different spiritual, most people are from different spiritual traditions. So it's really kind of harmony of all religions atmosphere. So I don't know if you can link the Zoom link or something, mm-hmm. but I'll send you the Zoom link. And that's every Monday night at 7 p.m. Pacific. I know it's a little late in Chicago. It's like two or three hours ahead, right? So it'll yeah, be like nine, so, nine p.m. Here. Nine. Yeah. So it'll be like kind of a bedtime story if you want. It'll be nine or ten. So <laughs> the lecture, there's a lecture from seven to eight. We'll talk about something. And then eight onwards, we'll have a QA. So that's just a free-for-all people ask questions. Now that's seven to like 10 p- PST every Monday night. Then um, there are other classes throughout the week. Of course, I'll I'll send you that schedule. Like they're all open okay. to the public, all donation based. So like Wednesday, uh, Friday, Friday we had, uh, Thursday is cool. Thursday I teach at a yoga studio called Yoga World Heart. That one is not donation; it's at a studio. But that one is um, a study of tantric texts. So we do verse by verse. Uh, word by word study of like Sanskrit texts that are essential to the yoga tradition. 
So that's pretty cool. Like for people who are looking for um, authentic scriptural basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that, I think I would recommend. Friday is cool. Friday is free slash donation based. And that one is also very similar. But that one is not tantric text per se. That one is just text in the wider tradition. So Yoga Sutra certainly, but right now we're doing Bhakti Sutra by Narada. So that might be cool. Um, Fridays, Fridays we have Hatha Yoga at five. And then we have the Sanskrit text study at six. And then we have a Q&A at seven. All of that. I'll put the schedule here. Of course, yeah, and I'll and I'll put it in our show notes too, so that people can just get on. We'll there also tag it's... you in all the social media information as well, so of everyone course. can follow yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and really anyone nice to have all the zooms. Sorry, it it is, and I just yeah. hope all your listeners will feel comfortable, like reaching out, asking questions, or or anything like that. You know, I pray that all three of us we can continue to be, by God's grace, a resource to ourselves and to all those who would like to study. And I pray that we'll always remember that we're never teachers, but we're always learning. And that mm-hmm. the more people ask us questions, the more of an opportunity Better. we get to learn, you know? So mm-hmm. I pray that your audience will reach out and give me an opportunity to learn by sharing these ideas that I love. Yes. Thank Nish, you so you. much. And, <laughs> and also follow, follow Nish on, on your TikTok is like huge, which I, I got off TikTok, but I didn't realize you're 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 blowing up on there. No, it's small. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So follow him. We'll put it all in the show notes on Instagram, TikTok, and you can continue learning with Nish yeah. along your own journey. Yes. Thank yeah. you all for listening. Have a safe and lovely week. We'll see you soon. Bye. Oh, oh that's it. Oh, oh, shanti, shanti, shanti.